Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at creating organizational change that lasts. Why it's important that companies be able to implement change successfully at scale. The role of design thinking and human-centered design in bringing about lasting organizational change. And what anyone in the government space should know about affecting change at government organizations. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Stephanie Rowe. Stephanie is an innovator, entrepreneur, business transformation expert, and MIT Sloan Fellow. She's the founder of Design Thinking DC, a meetup group with more than 2,000 members that brings together innovators with backgrounds in business, design, technology, and beyond to learn and share best practices in the world of design thinking and innovation. Stephanie has over 20 years of management experience, including a 15-year stint as a senior executive at Accenture, where she specialized in managing complex, large-scale transformation initiatives for Fortune 100 companies across multiple industries. She also spent just over three years at the TSA, where she led a complete re-engineering of the passenger screening process and culturally transformed the 50,000-plus TSA security operations workforce. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you, Will. I'm very excited to be here today. Absolutely. Us as well. We're thrilled to have you. So let's set the stage for the rest of the episode by talking about organizational change and why it's so important in this day and age. So we live in an age of hyperbole, but would it be overly hyperbolic to say that the times we're living in require companies to learn how to change or they will wither on the vine and die? Well, I think that is absolutely the case. And if you, you don't have to look very far to see that happening around all kinds of industries today. If you look back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, executives were brought in to lead, scale, make companies more efficient, and, and that seemed to be enough, at least for a while. But today's day and age, all of those things certainly are true, but I think what's increasingly different is the rapid pace of change and technology change, and it's forcing executives, CEOs in the C-suite, to reimagine their business models, not only to tweak them, but to also, in some cases, completely reimagine them and to anticipate the change that is coming. So if you can't, I believe that if organizations can't reinvent themselves, they are at a higher risk for failure. And I think there's an additional layer of complexity because I don't believe that a lot of senior executives are prepared to do that. Because if they've been in those roles for a while and we have more senior people leading, inventing new business models and changing out and getting organizations to adapt to not only a new way of operating, but also a completely new business model those necessarily weren't skills that were taught 20, 30 years ago. I think to an increasing degree, those skills are taught today. Um, so I think it's absolutely true, given the rate of the pace of change, that companies have to learn to adapt or they will not exist. So what do you think is the root cause or are the root causes uh, of the difficulty in making successful large-scale change in most organizations, other than you know not being classically trained to do so? I think that there's... Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but for me, I I think the top three are, um, first of all, having a narrative, 
having a very clear reason for why you are going to make this change. If people don't understand, I mean, not that it's going to be easy, but if people don't really understand the reason for the change, um, whether that's to increase sales, whether it's to stay alive as a business, whatever the case is, as a leadership team, you have to define that narrative and you have to communicate it over and over and over so that people really understand why. Um, and I think another, uh, you know, it's like number two would be a strong, fearless leadership team. And, you know, when you're undertaking organizational transformation and change at this level, it is going to be difficult. And depending upon the severity, meaning how, how much the organization has to change, the leadership really has to be fearless in terms of taking the lead, taking some risks, um, and understanding that it's going to be a little bit ambiguous and you're not going to know it all up front and that you really have to map out the steps of that change and then be fearless in doing so. If, if as a leader, you're not necessarily sure or you're not willing to put a stake in the ground to say, here's our future, I think the organization can really sense that and they won't be able to get on board. So I think you're also going to have a lot of resistance and people that aren't going to um, necessarily be on board. And so I think you have to, as a leader, be strong and know you're going to face that. And know that's just a natural part of the change and natural part of the evolution. Um, but don't be afraid to really clearly state the challenges ahead and the degree to which the firm or the company or organization needs to change. And I think a lot of leaders get fearful that it can be scary and what the organization is going through can be scary and you can scare the employees. But I think the reality is that most employees understand that they can sense it and they know it. And by not stating it, um, I think it actually becomes more troublesome. So I would say, don't be afraid to state the problems, take them on, full force uh, and go forward. And the third item would be having patience. You have to really architect the change and what it's going to take in the short term to get it launched. And then, you know, organizational transformation take, they take years, you know, sometimes up to 10 years, like if you look at Apple um, and you have to have the patience to know the change is going to come and you have to have a very structured plan in the short term, the midterm, and the long term. And know that um, as you make those steps and as you move forward, the change will come. But you can't be impatient. Um, I see a lot of organizations get impatient. They think it won't work, and then they backslide, and they don't make the change uh, because they just don't give it enough time. So those, I would say, um, a clear narrative, a strong, fearless leadership team, and patience for the change uh, with a clear plan in the short and long term are probably the three most important factors. Okay, nice. So let me ask you about design thinking and human-centered design. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, you're a founder of the Design Thinking DC meetup group that has more than 2,000 members. For those that may be unfamiliar with those terms, what is human-centered design or design thinking, and how can, those, how can that, I guess, way of thinking be applied to bring about organizational change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for me in my career, I came across human-centered design and design thinking probably, I would say, about 15 or 16 years into my career, and it's really been transformational in the way that I think about solving business problems. So up until that point, I was heavily focused on, I think, on very important management, you know, management principles, whether, you know, metrics, program plans, um, all those types of very analytical structured things, which are all very important. And what design thinking and human-centered design, and how I, would, I largely use human-centered design and design thinking synonymously, 
Um, but I would say design thinking might be a little bit more broad because you can incorporate um, a lot of types of methods and practices into that. So, but largely I use them synonymously. But what design thinking is, is it basically says when you have a, when you have a problem or you have an area that you want to innovate, you start from the human's perspective. So when you think about solving the problem, first and foremost, you're going to think about it from a human desirability perspective. And I think largely organizations tend to solve problems from a technical feasibility perspective or from a business viability perspective. And so by, by holding back on the technical feasibility and the design viability or in the business viability, you leave room for new ways of, for new possibilities and how you might operate your business or what your business models might be. So you, by focusing on the human, what that means is you say, okay, I'm going to drop the constraints from the business side. I'm going to drop the constraints from the technology side, and I'm going to solve this specific problem as it relates to the humans that are involved in that situation. So I'll give you an example from, like, when I was at Transportation Security Administration, we were really trying to get the workforce um, more engaged in in their jobs at the checkpoint and to really engage more directly with passengers. And so we thought about how can we improve, you know, how might we improve security surely by how the security office would engage the public. And so to solve that problem, we, you know, to really think about increasing security, we solved the problem or looked at the problem specifically from the angle of the security, um, from the security officer. Okay, so let me ask you about transformation, because in your role at Accenture, you specialized in large-scale transformation efforts. Can you share a success story from your time at Accenture of the kinds of organizational change you were able to bring about and how that benefited the companies with whom you worked or the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were, I was doing a systems implementation for a large oil company, and we were doing it um, and we were doing it across, you know, it was, I think, a couple of hundred sites and 10 or 20,000 employees. And um, the, as we were implementing this new system, it was clear that the business needed to operate in a different way. They had not, they didn't have control of their information and their data. And so they were losing money because they just, they lacked control. And so the change that we implemented was going to be pretty significant in terms about, in terms of how all of the employees had to, not all, but a significant portion of the employees and how they had to do their jobs differently. So we actually implemented, um, we had a whole team dedicated to, to nothing but the human side of that transformation. And so in addition to the technical teams and the business process teams, we had um, basically a change management team. And we, sp we took the entire organization literally from the CEO all the way down and we put it on a, on a board and we mapped out and we said, okay, for each individual job, like how are those individual jobs going to change? So the senior executives loved it. They could walk in and on this map, they could really understand at any point in the organization, like where the change was going to happen and exactly how it was going to function, what, what the change would be. And so from that, we then actually designed a really robust job change program. And we mapped out literally every single job, how it was going to change. We did discussion guides or we did uh, tools to help the workforce. And then we had, we set up a structure where every, every supervisor all the way down had individual conversations with all the people about how their jobs were going to change. And this was ever before they went into training. So in addition to like a very detailed, robust communications plan about why the change was going to come and the leadership, I think did a very good job of explaining why the change was going to come. 
because if they didn't get control of the numbers, what would happen to the business? So I think they did a whole series of communications up front, and then and then that followed by was followed by the very detailed discussions, individual discussions about how the jobs were going to change. And we actually tracked it down and we made sure that every single communication in that way happened. Um, and that was a requirement every before people came into training because sometimes. When you do a significant change, people think, oh, we'll just train them on a computer system and it will all be fine. But what happens is either people end up not, in my experience, people end up not going to training or they get into training and they don't really understand, like, why they're there or they'll say, well, this is not what my job. My job is something different. So by doing that, um, I thought the organization itself, they did such a good job of mapping this out. So when people got into training, they were actually focused on how they were going to do their jobs differently in the future. Um and it was a it was a large it was it was a really strong success because I've seen some failures too, um, but this one was very successful. Yeah, it, and it sounds like from your first answer too. I mean, a, a lot of creating change that, that lasts is helping people understand why you're going to do something, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely critical, and I think it's very simple. But yet, a lot of companies, I would say, the majority of time, I would say, companies don't do this. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's a mix sometimes of why that is. I think sometimes people feel like they kind of need to change, but they just can't even, even the executives themselves can't get clarity around it. Or they're actually going back to the point where I said at the beginning, um, they're afraid. They're afraid to say if there are problems. And like I said, in my experience, the employees know that there are problems. So by not addressing them, you know, in a very uh, forward kind of way, you just, companies just tend to let it foster um, when they would really be much better off by clearly stating the problem. Um, I mean, not to scare people, but you want to say, here's the problem, here's how we're going to address it, here's where we're going and why. And I just find that um, I continue to be surprised by the amount of leaders that don't do that. Yeah. And it seems like also if you're open and honest about your problems, then you just have that many more people that are able to perhaps help you come up with solutions to those problems. Yeah, I think that that's right, and I think you can even see in society there's becoming this trend towards authenticity. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff like that Intuit has done recently or like Domino's Pizza with some of the mistakes they've made. I just I feel like a trend and, you know, just a trend that kind of adds on to this is this authenticity trend, um, and people want to know that their executives are, are authentic and that they're open and transparent with what's going on. Sure, definitely. Uh, okay, so you mentioned the TSA earlier. You spent several years there making the country's airports safer. What did you learn about making change within government agencies during your time at TSA? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's really interesting. I you know I thought about this a lot, and I get this question a lot. Um, or I'm around people that comment that say, "Oh, you know, change is so much harder in government. It's easier in the private sector." And and I think that there and I think that there are pros and cons, right? I think in some ways it's easier in government, and some ways it's harder, and vice versa. So. What I would say is, in government, I think the one thing that government really has going for it, and I was, and I saw this, you know, very in a very big way when I was at TSA, and that is, government, they have a clear sense of mission, and so going back to the importance of narrative, if you're at the Department of Homeland Security or at TSA, you can say, you know, our mission here is to stop attacks, and people can get really, you know, most of the people join TSA to do just that to create a safer society. And so you can, uh, in the case when I was at TSA, we, I was there when um, we had the, remember the liquid plot of 06 that gave us all the little bottles and baggies. Um, you know, 
TSA didn't have the equipment to detect that threat at the time. And so we had to turn that organization around very quickly. And, you know, and we did some other changes after that, but we largely, you know, we have the benefit of a, of a very compelling mission. And the truth can, that can also be said for many government agencies. And so I think that aspect of the change is easier because I think the narrative is easier, where if you are in private sector, depending upon your business, and if you're trying to make a change based on purely bottom line numbers, I think that's a harder narrative to make. I mean, I think you absolutely can do it, but I think it's more difficult than doing it in government. Um, the flip side of that would be in government, if you fail, you fail, you could potentially fail in a very public way. And part of innovating and part of transform, doing transformation is you have to take risks to kind of see what's going to work. And so private sector, I think, largely can um, scale more in a more private kind of way, not exclusively, but to a large, such a large degree, where if you're trying to innovate and change and transforming government, um, you do it a lot of the time with a big microscope on you or a big spotlight, as in the case of TSA. I mean, everybody, everybody loves to hate TSA, right? Um, and they're always watching for mistakes you're going to make. So I think that um, it's a little bit harder from the actual taking risk and testing and trying new things and transformation in government because you fail so publicly. So, uh, but in general, I would say that the people are people and people, you know, one of the things with, with driving change in the human side of that is you have to let them kind of go through, if you've ever heard of the, um, like the cycle of grief, <laughs> the, the seven stages of grief right. um, in dealing with loss or change. And I think that that's a very human trait and you have to understand that and deal with that. Um, whether you're in private sector or you're doing something in government and just understand that you have to take the time to bring the people through all of those changes. Um, so I don't know that one is harder than the other. I do think that um, humans are humans um, and it's absolutely possible. But one thing I really also would say is that um, it's possible to make changing government. Um, but I think you have to be, um, again, it goes back to being a fearless leader, you can, you absolutely can make change in government. You can fire people in government if you, you know, if you put the time and the effort and you check the boxes. So I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, you can't make change in government. Um, and I, I just disagree. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but, um, but I think you absolutely can do it. Yeah. And, and I would imagine at the TSA that it had to have been a hard situation to be in because you're, you're balancing, I guess the the overriding mission is to get people from point A to point B safely. So that's, you can always fall back to that, but you also want to get people where they're going quickly. People certainly probably don't want to take off their belts and jackets and shoes and, you know, have only three ounces of fluid in their book bags and have them all wrapped in plastic. Um, so I, I guess when you're in a situation like that, how do you balance those competing priorities where you know that you're going to maybe anger 90% of the people by doing what you do? Is it just having that overarching mission that you're driving toward? Yeah, that is such a good question um, because I remember at the time of the Liquid Plot of 06 sitting in, um, in the skiff, which is like a secure area, and we were understanding the intel and we were balancing, we were having those exact conversations, right? Because you're confronted with the, your sense of privacy and, and you're, you know, and wanting, you know, and not, you're trying to not impede commerce, right? So you want to, you don't want to slow things down. You don't want to invade people's privacy, but yet you want to make them safe. And those things are in direct conflict. And so it's, I think for me, that was actually one of the most interesting and compelling 
uh, areas of my time in government. I really understood at that moment why people work in government, having spent the majority of my career in private sector. And what I would say about that is it gives you as an individual a huge sense of mission. But as long as you look and really try to understand, again, going back to human-centered design, I mean, we spent a lot of time understanding, like, I can't even tell you, we were doing the whole small, small bottles and baggies thing. We had baggies of every size. And we were trying to balance that against the intel and saying, okay, what, you know, what threats do each of these employ? Or what, in the case of everything from, you know, toothpaste to mascara uh, and baby formula, like, we looked at all of those things individually and tried to discuss them and say, what would the impact be? Or, you know, on a traveling mom, what, what is the impact to a person or a kid that's a, di- that's a diabetic? And all I can say is we weighed each of those and thought through each of them. And at the end of the day, um, we would, we did what we could, but we had to come down on the sense of security. And I think what you have to do in those cases, this goes back to being a fearless leader and stating the narrative and basically saying, here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Um, and that's actually one thing I think TSA could do better. I don't think that TSA does a good enough job communicating to the public on what they do and why they do it. Um, I think that TSA could get much more collaboration from the public if they actually empowered their workforce. Like the TSA, I don't think they do this as much. We tried to do this when I was there to empower that workforce to answer some of those questions, and they're largely not empowered to answer those. So I think it goes back to um, the narrative of why you're doing things. And in this case, driving it all the way down to the front line because of the passengers and the experience the passengers are going to have. And then therefore, you know, the media, all of the media play that goes around that. I mean, one thing I did when I was at TSA, everything that you do before you do it, you think about it as a headline on the front page of the Washington Post. <laughs> so as I was making decisions, I'm like, okay, what is that going to look like as a headline? Um, and sometimes you say, okay, it's potentially going to be a bad headline, but you just, you have to do it anyway, because at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do. And, and what, whatever headline it may be beats the alternative of, you know, the underwear bomber crashes the plane at Reagan or, you know, whatever the case may be. Well, exactly. Because you can't, and that's just too risky. I mean, you can't, the risk is just too great because the, the consequences are dire. I mean, they're, they're catastrophic. Sure. Okay. So, so let me switch gears a little bit and ask about another three letter acronym, MIT. Uh, in addition to your time at Accenture and the TSA, you've most recently been an MIT Sloan fellow. And while you were there, you took some courses at the famed MIT Media Lab. It's often hailed as a breeding grab for the next great technological innovations. Uh, so can you share a little bit of your experience at the MIT Media Lab? And did you maybe get a sneak peek at anything that you can uh, talk about publicly? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, MIT is an amazing place. I was really fortunate to be able to be, just spend um, you know, my time up there as a Sloan Fellow And what I would say is that the media lab, and as well as other places at MIT, like there's also the CCL lab, which is computer science and artificial intelligence, but the media lab is really interesting because the tone of the media lab is just different. So I spent a lot of my time at Sloan, the business school, which is much more structured. And I think this is interesting from a discussion around innovation. So Sloan is business and much more structured with MIT media lab most of their classes are not very structured. So they, in the media lab in general, has a very kind of loose culture, a loose tone about it, and then therefore the classes tend to be very loose. And I think that what I mean by that is they don't have, as you're doing projects, 
and they don't put a lot of parameters on you. So um, one of the classes I took was called um, Futurecraft. And Futurecraft is, if you can think about it, is a fusion of venture. So you're trying to create a venture that's going to make money, or it could be a nonprofit. You're looking at sustainability, and you're looking at design. Um, so it's bringing those three disciplines together. And they basically had us, they gave us lectures on each of those three areas about creating ventures, what is it, you know, how, what kind of role can design play, and then we did a lot of work around sustainability and um, life cycle assessments of impact of products on the environment throughout the life cycle of that product. And so, and then it was pretty much up to us, not only to form our own teams, but to shape ventures. And so, um, it's, it, I'll just say it's, it's, it, it, because it's very loose and it's not for everybody, it's very ambiguous. So as long as you're comfortable to ambiguity, I think it drives a lot of innovation. So out of those structures is they kind of just, they just make sure like they just coach you in a very light structure. And then the results they get out of that from a class perspective, I think are really amazing. Um, and my time at the Media Lab, there were many areas where they just made me think about things completely differently. And following on to your question about what are some um, emerging technologies, I think, I think what we're going to see and what I saw a lot of in the Media Lab was significantly changing the way that we interact with computers. So, you know, we largely use a keyboard uh, to an increasing degree. You know, you have keyboard touch pads, and now we can start to talk to them. And what I've seen a lot of really amazing stuff in the Media Lab is ways where you can manipulate data or interact with your computer without a keyboard, almost virtually in the air. Um, so I can't say too much about some of that stuff. It's under, uh, uh, under protection. But uh, it really had me thinking differently about how I might manipulate data um, basically in the world around me. Uh, so not so much where I was using any sort of computer, but I'm almost interacting with an image or a hologram, if you can imagine something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, I think, one thing that really got me thinking differently about just solutions and um, new businesses around a different frame of interacting with technology. I think was one that was really interesting. And then I took another class called Media Lab X, which was largely out of the Lifeline Kindergarten group um, in the Media Lab, and that was also amazing. And that, um, I'll say kind of one thing around that was, um, there's a professor there named Patty Mays, and she was lecturing. She's also, she's, she's amazing as well. And she's, she's talking about, she basically started to challenge the fundamental notion of why do we front load education? And why do we go to school for, you know, from basically age four or five all the way up, you know, age 18, and then you either stop or you go for another four years and you front load your life with education? And she was challenging that fundamental notion um, and basically saying, why do we do that? Why do we not have just-in-time learning so that we actually only learn when we, at the moment in time when we need it? And, um, and it really had me reframe very fundamentally how I think about education. Um, and for me, that's why I love the Media Lab, because you go in there and you spend some time, and it will give you a truly new frame of looking at the world and challenging things that you don't even necessarily think about challenging. 
Okay, nice. We'll come back to uh, education in a minute. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about another thing that you mentioned in that answer, which was tolerance for ambiguity. So that was one of the things that you and I talked about in the prep call for this podcast. Uh, it's it, And it's for organizations to have a discipline with each company that has that tolerance for ambiguity. So for companies out there that maybe don't have that level of comfort with the unknown, what are some ways you might recommend that they kind of develop that discipline? Yeah, it's such an important, as we talked about, that is such an important skill to have if you want to innovate. Because if you're really going to come up with something new, you have to wade through a you have to wade through a pretty significant period of ambiguity. Um, and so, what I would say is, I would start small and think about like exercise and grow your tolerance for it. So, um, you protect, so if one example could be you pull a team together, and I would I would do that on a volunteer basis. I would not assign people to that team. I would say this is going to be a project for people that like ambiguity and things that are unstructured. Um, come on in because I, I think of myself in that way. And when I, I was doing the project at CFA and it was extremely ambiguous and I was even slightly uncomfortable. So I would ask for people that want to do kind of a, an innovative, you know, very unstructured, ambiguous project. And then I would pick something in the business, a problem, a, a real true problem that needs to be solved. And then I would um, go through like a design thinking process for that, starting with a, from a human centered design perspective and just walk yourself through that process. And as you're doing it and you're really saying, okay, um, here's the problem. We've kind of identified that. Now we're going to research and talk to a bunch of people. And then when you come back, I think when you come back from doing a lot of research around talking to people uh, through the frame of trying to solve the problem, you get a lot of data. And this is where it gets really ambiguous um, for so what. So you've done a lot of research now. What does that all mean? And you can get there, but I would start small and I would just iterate through a smaller problem to a bigger problem to a bigger one and kind of exercise yourself through it that way. And you will build the muscle um, or the tolerance for, for ambiguity. At least that set of people will. And to the degree that that set of people can, can have that tolerance, they can then go out and then they can lead teams throughout the business um, and help teach others how to tolerate the, ambi- how to tolerate the ambiguity. Okay, nice. So, so let's come back to education. As I mentioned in the introduction, one of the many hats that you wear is that of an entrepreneur. So can you share with listeners what your current venture is and how you hope it will change the world for young women out there? Yeah, absolutely. It's my, my passion. So um, right now I have started a business um, and it's called Jewel, J-O-U-L-E-Z. And what I'm trying to do is reimagine I'm going to use the term toys, but I don't mean toys that uh, that literally. So I'm trying to reimagine toys for girls that are going to want to get them to engage in science, technology, engineering, math, um, STEM, for the acronym for people that don't know. So in, so looking at the way that we teach you know, science, technology, engineering, and math today, I think we largely teach that through building things um, and doing things that we socialize to be for boys. And so I think a lot of girls, um, well, actually, the, the statistics show a lot of girls start to lose interest in these areas as early as seven and eight, and they have, there's a dramatic drop-off point by about 12. And so what I'm looking at is how can we um, kind of change the frame of how we think about teaching these types of things and bringing them into things that girls are interested in doing. Um, so how might you actually use electronics in a craft book, as an example, and teach electrical engineering uh, through crafting um, instead of teaching electrical engineering through building a robot, which is also a very valid way of doing it. 
So that's my passion. That's my business is to create a whole set of uh, new experiences and products for girls that get them really excited about engaging in STEM. Okay, nice. Uh, and and any idea or inkling when you know when prototypes or first versions or something of jewels might be available to the general public? Oh, we're yeah. It's going to probably be about a year. We are very we are very early stage. We are right now in the prototyping stage, and we're following the. Um, I live and die by the human centered design process. Now, I fundamentally believe it's an it's an amazing way. It's an amazing tool for innovation, and so. We now, um, I spend a lot of time with little girls <laughs> playing with toys. And so we are uh, actually working through about three or four prototypes right now. And the girls will lead us to what our ultimate product will be. So I'm very excited about it. Very nice. Well, I, I can tell from your voice that it's a, a true passion of yours. Uh, Stephanie, we're getting toward the end of the half hour. You've given some great wisdom, some great words of wisdom already, but any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking to bring about successful and long-lasting change within their organization? I would say, just in summary, I would say um, have you know have a lot of patience. You're gonna have to grow a thick skin um, and surround yourself with people that know what it's gonna take to make the change in the long term. And they have the tolerance to do so. The type of people that it takes to lead change, they have to not, they have to be strong people um, because it can be tough and they're going to, they're going to have, they're, they're going, they're just, you're just going to face resistance. That's just a product of it. So I would say, you know, have the patience, find the right team, and don't be afraid to uh, communicate authentically. Okay, nice. Well, Stephanie, great advice. Thank, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great talking with you about creating organizational change that lasts. Well, thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, and this is a huge passion area of mine. So I'm really thrilled to be here. And uh, thanks for um, talking today. Absolutely. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Stephanie Rowe, you can follow her on Twitter at, at Stephanie L. Rowe. You can also follow Design Thinking DC on Twitter at, at DT underscore DC. And you can visit their website at www designthinkingdc.com The Innovation Engine will be out on spring break next week but you can catch us again on Monday, April 27th when we'll have Adi Chikara from Three Pillars Advanced Technology Group on the podcast to talk about advanced technology. We'll look at why Adi thinks we'll soon find ourselves in the post-development language world what it means when we talk about being in the age of micro-framework systems, and what skill sets will be most important for developers to possess five years from now. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.